Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. If you're looking for jewelry that makes an impact on your self-care routine and your style, Empowerography would love to offer you a discount code to one of our exclusive partners, Quartz and Canary Jewelry and Wellness Company. Please use code EMPOWER15 to receive 15% off upon checkout at www.quartzandcanary.com. Quartz and Canary is truly the place where spirituality meets style. Hello there, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast today. My guest is Elena Rajagopal. She is a physician, scientist, and serial entrepreneur based in LA. How are you doing today, Elena? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today with me and share a bit about your story and journey. I appreciate you and I appreciate you taking the time to be here. So let's jump right in. Awesome. Elena, you are one hell of a busy woman. You're a board certified (laughs) and licensed emergency medicine physician a scientist, an actress, a podcast host. How do you find all the time to fit all the other stuff in? As I'm sure being a physician alone would be incredibly busy. Yeah, um, I'm definitely still trying to figure that out on a daily (laughs) basis. Um, I think I've always been really regimented with my time. And so I've really tried to be organized. Um, As a new mom, it makes it a little tougher because I can't always like plan everything perfectly. Um, but yeah, I, I remember a specific time when I was in graduate school and I was studying for the MCATs to get into medical school and I worked from 5am every day until like 10 or 11pm. And then I'd give myself like one hour or 30 minutes off for dinner. And that was like the only time I wasn't working all day. So fortunately my schedule's not that bad now. Um, and so everything I think is a little more, um, it seems a little easier compared to that period of time. That sounds incredibly hectic. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I'm I'm in awe of your stamina. <laughs> That's just amazing. <laughs> well, I definitely um I get tired, so I'm sure. Um, definitely not keeping up the schedule that I have in graduate school, medical school and residency. So, it's been nice to not be working 24 or 36 hour shifts now. And um, (laughs) so I think things seem very reasonable when I compare it to some of the stuff I've done in the past. Wow. So how long have you been a physician now, Elena? Um, I graduated from medical school in 2016. Um, So I think that's five years now. Okay. What what inspired you to become a physician? I mean, was this something you wanted to do with your life since you were a kid or? I definitely, I was one of those kids who wanted to do everything. I mean, I guess obviously I'm an adult that wants to do everything too, but I think I remember first being interested in medicine after I saw an episode of ER as a kid. I thought it just looked so fun um, and so cool to be able to help save people's lives. Um, And then I remember in college, I studied abroad in Kenya for seven months. And while I was there, I volunteered at an HIV clinic. And so I really enjoyed spending the time with patients. And at the time, I was really only responsible for kind of taking people's vital signs and looking at what medications they were taking. And so I wasn't doing a lot to heal people. And so I remember having those thoughts at the time and thinking, you know, if I were a doctor, I'd actually really be able to help these people. Um, And then it wasn't really until halfway through graduate school where I'd been focusing on virology and immunology. So I was really just looking at like one small body system. And I just kept asking myself, like, how does this all fit together with the rest of a human? I felt like I knew a lot about one little thing. And I really wanted to know more about how humans worked and kind of how the whole body functioned together. And so that kind of combined with my experiences in the HIV clinic and, um, you know, those sort of nagging thoughts I'd had in the back of my mind for a while about becoming a physician led me to apply. And um, so after I finished my PhD, I started medical school. Wow. 
What is an emergency medicine physician? Yeah, that is a great question. It's actually a pretty new specialty. Um, The specialty started, I think, in the 1970s, but it's basically a physician who works to see patients on an emergency basis. So you don't need to make an appointment. We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so we see a lot of really critical patients, people who are having heart attacks, strokes, and sort of those light life-threatening conditions that need immediate stabilization. Okay. So we stabilize those conditions and then we help figure out if a patient needs to be admitted to the hospital or if they can go home and follow up with their primary physician. And so um, a lot of times it seems kind of like we're the triage of the hospital, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's a great job and you definitely never really know what's coming through the door on any Uh, given day. Well, I'm sure it keeps things very interesting because every day would be different, right? Yeah, it absolutely is. Now I read that you're on a mission to inspire the next generation of explorers, scientists, and strong female leaders, and to also help patients become more informed about medicine. Why have you decided to take this on and make this your personal mission? And why is this so important to you? Yeah, I grew up with some very strong women in my life. My mother, my grandmother taught me so much about strength and hard work and um, pursuing your dreams. And so I was really fortunate to have great female role models in my life. Um, But I didn't really have any role models in science. And a lot of the films and television shows that inspired me didn't necessarily have strong scientific females in them. A lot of them were um, males that were in these sort of um, scientific roles or explorer roles. And so I think recognizing how much film and television inspired me to pursue my career goals. Like I like I mentioned before, saw ER and thought, oh, maybe I want to be an ER doctor. And I saw Jurassic Park and thought, maybe I want to be a paleontologist. And I actually interned in paleontology for a while. (laughs) And I saw Apollo 13 and was like, yeah, I think I want to be an astronaut. And I ended up working at three NASA centers. So um, I think there's a lot that inspired me as a kid, but, you know, I was really lacking those female scientific role models. And so I hope that kind of by doing the podcast and acting in some of those strong female scientific roles, we'll be able to inspire the next generation of scientists, physicians, explorers, um, and kind of change that, that paradigm surrounding what a scientist or a doctor or an explorer looks like. Amazing. So obviously science came before medicine then. Have you just finished your your um, medical de- uh, degree in 2016, right? Yes. Uh-huh. So what inspired the transition from science into medicine? Was that like just a natural evolution or progression for you? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, science has always been a part of my life ever since I was a kid. Science is what got me excited and I was constantly asking questions about science and the science and industry museum in Chicago was my favorite museum. And so often my mom later told me, she always told me to go look it up because she didn't know. But um, (laughs) at the time it was really valuable for my learning to, she would always say, go look up the answer to that question. So I'd go find a book in the library or an encyclopedia and sort of find the answers to my questions. And if I couldn't find them, she'd be like, okay, well, let's make an experiment to figure this out. Or um, So she really inspired me to sort of uh, answer my own questions mm-hmm. often by looking things up. So science was always a part of my life. And then, um, like I said, I went to graduate school and about halfway through graduate school, I just, I felt like something was missing. I was in a lab by myself for like 12, 15 hours a day. Um, And I remember there was one moment where I was sitting at my lab bench and I thought about naming my pipettes. And I just like sat back from the lab bench really quickly and was like, oh my God, I need human interaction. I need to be around people. Um, And I really enjoy being around people. And so I, I remember that as being sort of a pivotal moment where I was kind of thinking, 
maybe medicine is a better fit for me and that I'll be able to interact with people every day and sort of see the results of my work helping people every day where in the science field, you know, you can work on one small problem for decades and it's decades before it actually helps people. But um, at the same time, I think they're all necessary and they're all needed. And so it's just kind of for me, figuring out what made sense for my personality and kind of my thought process. Right. I find it very interesting that you mentioned about your, you would ask your mom questions. She, she'd tell you to go look it up. I think that a lot of parents would normally just say, okay, well, here, here's the, they just give them the answer as opposed mm-hmm. to making them work for it and figure it out on their own, which I think is brilliant. And I think that's the way things should be done. And yes, of course, if you can't, if your child or kid can't figure it out, then yes, you sit down and help them. But I think it's great that your mom instilled that initiative in you to go look for it yourself, try and find the answer on your own. Yeah, It's totally. so important as opposed to just giving our kids the answers, make them work she- for it made me curious. And Mm -hmm. I think that was such an important quality where, um, you know, I knew nothing was going to be spoon fed to me. If I was going to ask a question, there was going to be, you know, a a process to get the answer. So uh, I agree. I think that was such an amazing skill that she for sure. That's a very big lesson. I applaud your mom for that. I think that's incredible. More parents need to do that. I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, you've done a fair bit of clinical work on medical treatment in remote environments. What was that experience like for you? And how did those opportunities arise for you? Yeah, every opportunity, I guess, has just happened. It's it's an opportunity that arose. And I've always really tried to take advantage of any opportunity that presents itself. But uh, I studied abroad in Kenya um, for seven months in college. And I went to Kalamazoo College in Michigan, where... I think it's 85% of the student body studies abroad. So it's a huge part of the education there. Um, And so I was in Kenya and like I said, worked in the HIV clinic. And I just, I was so surprised at how different medical care was in Kenya as compared to in the United States, just access to equipment, access to testing, access to medications. And some of the patients I saw would um, have to walk like six miles or 10 miles to get to the clinic. And, you know, it was something that really stayed with me and struck me. So whenever I had an opportunity to go somewhere else, I felt like that was somewhere where I could really make a difference by working in those places. So in medical school, I Brazil for a couple of months doing physiology research and in um, uh, I guess the end of medical school I went to the Philippines for a month in residency I went to Nepal for a month and so I've really found that I like the challenges presented by working in wilderness medicine and remote medicine Um, and so anytime I can find those opportunities I absolutely take them I was actually supposed to go to um, India and I want to say April of 2020, okay. but everything kind of yeah, shut down. Shut down. <laughs> Due to the current yeah. climate yeah. in the world. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think it's incredible the work you're doing. I think that's amazing to be able to get those, op- have those opportunities and take advantage of them when they arise. So I applaud you for that. I think it's incredible work and just, I'm, you are <laughs> such an inspiration, honestly, oh, with all you. that you do. Wow. I mean, I feel like it's almost a little selfish. Like I find the work so rewarding. Um, I really, I just, I think it's so fulfilling to be able to work in remote places and meet new people and learn about different cultures and try to understand and empathize with the challenges that people have all over the world. Because ultimately I think most people want the same thing. They want to be loved. They want to feel safe. They want to have a community around them and, um, you know, access to, to healthcare. And, um, so just to have the opportunity to provide that is, is really, really fulfilling. And um, I have no doubt. That's amazing. Now you had mentioned that you've worked at three NASA space centers. So you've done some work around space flight. Can you talk to us a bit about the work you've done with NASA? 
at the space sure. centers? Um, so yeah, I've been a space geek basically my entire life. <laughs> space um, geek. <laughs> yeah. Um, I definitely, like I said, saw Apollo 13 and, um, it was something that just really inspired me and I latched onto. So I, um, as a kid went and read every single space book in the kids section of the library and then kind of moved on to the adult section. I went to space camp, like it was uh, always a passion for me. And so- okay. I went to college and um, my advisor at the time knew I was interested in space flight and said, you know, uh, there's this internship at Kennedy Space Center I think you should apply for. And my immediate thought was, oh, no, 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 I, I can't apply. Like, there's no way I'll ever get an internship at NASA. Right. And I remember her looking me like dead in the eyes and just saying, Elena, if you don't apply for this internship, your chances of getting in are zero percent. And I really took that to heart. And I think that has been, again, one of those pivotal moments where I was just, I realized that unless you take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves, you know, you could spend your entire life wondering if you could have reached your dreams or just do it. So I applied and it turns out I got the internship. So um, there I worked on uh, controlled biological systems and I was basically trying to figure out if we could grow radishes (laughs) under lower atmospheric pressure. Because basically when we go to Mars and the moon, there's much lower atmospheric pressure. And so there's concern that will constantly be having to make atmosphere inside our space capsules that's just sort of leaking out into the environment because um, atmosphere moves from high pressure to low pressure. So if we can have some the greenhouses and some of those bigger capsules be a lower atmospheric pressure, we would lose less atmosphere to the environment around us and then have to make less. So that was kind of what I was trying to do there. And... um, We found that you can grow radishes under lower atmospheric pressures, but there's maybe some differences to the the radish content. So I haven't kept track of how that research has been going since 2005. I think it was 2005 that I was there, but (laughs) it's been a while. Um, But I know the the people in um, space botany and controlled biological systems are really um, making interesting discoveries as they explore those different environments. And then after that, I went to NASA Ames Research Center in California, and there I was working in astrobiology. So trying to figure out what sorts of organisms grow in environments on Earth that have similar geochemistry to Mars. So we found some areas, excuse me, we found some areas in California that had similar, um, similar soil to Mars. It had similar um, minerals and things like that. So we started sampling those areas below ground and above ground to see what sort of organisms were growing in those environments on Earth. So we would kind of have a better idea of what to look for um, on Mars when humans eventually go or with our rovers now. So um, that was just sort of like a comparison and see what's growing kind of study. (laughs) Um, And then I went to graduate school at the University of Texas, but did all of my research at Johnson Space Center in uh, Houston. And so there um, I was mostly working on viral reactivation during spaceflight. And so I focused on Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mononucleosis and is associated with several types of cancer. Uh, and tried to figure out why it was reactivating in space. We knew that it did reactivate, but we weren't really sure why. And so I was looking at radiation and microgravity as two things that are unique to space uh, that could cause reactivation. And um, so that was a really interesting study and was the topic of my dissertation where we found that um, both radiation and microgravity in some sense cause reactivation of the virus. Um, And so it was, it was really cool. Um, And so I finished my dissertation before actually looking at any countermeasures or treatments. I was just kind of like, Hey, here's a problem. Bye. I'm going to medical school. (laughs) That, uh, that topic is still under investigation. That is incredible. I mean, to, to be able to say you've worked at NASA 
it's just wow, mind blowing. I think it's such an incredible thing to have on your resume, obviously. But what an experience that must have been. NASA is an amazing place, and it's really incredible to me what NASA as a whole is able to accomplish with so little funding. I mean, I remember my parents came to visit once, and they were really surprised at the quality of the buildings. The buildings were still from, you know, like the 50s, 60s, 70s. And they were like, wow, we expected, you know, these like big fancy um, buildings and the money is not going to making fancy buildings. The money is going to science. And so that's something really cool about working there. And I mean, obviously, anytime you work for the government, there can be some bureaucracy and that can be frustrating. But then you're at a stoplight and a prototype for the lunar rover pulls up next to you. And you're (laughs) like, you know what? This is pretty cool. I guess so. Yeah. Amazing. Now, I read that you've also obtained your private pilot's license. You you are one multifaceted woman, such an inspiration with all that you've done and the work you do. Was the pilot's license something you'd always wanted to do? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the world's such an interesting place, and I feel like there's so much to do and learn and explore that I I try try to take advantage of that whenever I can. But Um, I'd always been interested in flying and uh, my dad growing up was a private pilot. So we would fly to like Iowa for breakfast or, you know, just kind of explore the area around us. And I had a roommate that I lived with at Kennedy Space Center, who then was working also in Houston when I started at Johnson Space Center. So we were roommates there as well. And one day she was like, you know what, the entire time I've known you, I've heard you talk about wanting to be a pilot, like get in the car, we're going to the airport, because she also happened to be a flight instructor. Okay. So I got in the car, we went to the airport, I had my first flight lesson. And I mean, there was no turning back after that. I was just beyond hooked. So um, (laughs) she ended up having to go back to Um, I think she was in graduate school or undergrad. I can't remember. I think it was graduate school at the time. And so she had to go to Atlanta. So I ended up finishing my, my license with another instructor, but I will always be grateful to her. She remains one of my good friends to this day for just kind of giving me that kick in the pants. I needed to stop talking about it and just do it. That's amazing. Now, how long have you been a pilot now? And how often now do you get the opportunity to get out flying? Let's see. I think I finished my license in 2010. Okay. Um, I'd have to check my logbook, but I think it was 2010. (laughs) And I flew a lot while I was in uh, graduate school. When I started medical school, I um, flew a little less. And then when I was in residency, I flew exactly zero times over those three years. So since finishing residency, I've flown once or twice. Um, So definitely not often. And then with COVID being in a small cockpit and then being pregnant as well, um, (laughs) I didn't do much flying over the last year, but um, I'm definitely looking forward to getting back into it. And I think something that makes safer pilots is having an instrument rating. So kind of learning how to use your instruments to navigate when the weather conditions aren't ideal or, you know, crystal clear. So yeah. that's kind of in my, my plan is to okay. do that instrument reading. How long does the process take? Like how long did it take you to get your license from start to finish? It's really variable from person to person. Okay. And it also sort of depends on how often you can fly. Okay. If you fly really often, I think you can get it more quickly. So if you're flying like once a day or a few times a week, but yeah. I was in graduate school and so I was making very, very, very little money. Yeah. So I could afford to fly um, once every two weeks. And okay. so it took me, I think about a year and a half. Or two years by the time oh, I finished my. That's not too bad. Person. Now, is that what? What does it cost roughly in total, say, or per flight, even? Because you have to have a certain amount of hours logged, right? Yes. Um, when I was training, I was in Texas, and fuel and the airplane rental and instructors were so much less expensive than here in California. Right. Um, so I think at the time I flew a Cessna 152 and that costed $80 for the rental for an hour. 
the instructor was usually around, I think, 30 or $35 an hour. And then there was a fuel surcharge that was maybe like five or $6 an hour. So really you're looking at like a hundred, $120 an hour, which, um, every lesson is usually on the order of one to two hours, unless you're doing like a long cross country or something like that. They can be three or four hours. And Um, how many hours in total do you need of flying time? I think it was 40 um, is sort of the bare minimum, but I think I had 55 by the time I felt like I'd really met all the requirements and was ready for the check ride. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you have to do a written exam and then a a oral exam. And then after that, you go up with an instructor or a a check ride um, instructor and they do the, the actual test to make sure you know how to fly the plane. (laughs) Amazing. Um, So it's, it's an involved process, but it's so much fun. I'm sure. Now, in addition to all of this, you're also an actress. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, Elena, where on, like, I, I, my mind is blown with all that you do and all that you have under your belt. I can't fathom how you have the time to do all this. So how long have you been acting? I started acting, well, I guess, again, that's something I sort of did all my life. I remember as a little kid, my friends and I would do a lot of just improv and sort of um, spur of the moment shows that we would put together. So I don't know, I guess I was always a little bit of a performer and I performed in piano and some other stuff. So I was used to being, I guess, in front of a crowd. And then I knew I, I had an interest in acting. So I took some classes in college and really enjoyed those. And, um, when I was about halfway through graduate school, I remember there was a really difficult committee meeting that I'd had. And, you know, I was, I visibly upset. And I remember my, uh, advisor telling me after the meeting, like, you know, you just need to learn to be a better actress and, you know, think about graduate school like a beauty pageant and learn to impress the judges. And I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do any beauty pageants, um, (laughs) but I could definitely learn to be a better actress and sort of use those skills to, to my advantage, especially when it comes to speaking. And so I joined um, one of those online sort of casting websites and I got an audition and I was like, oh crap, now what, what do I do? I have an audition. <laughs> so I prepared a monologue and uh, I ended up getting the role, um, which is like crazy to think of now. I remember walking into the audition and not knowing, you know, like what to do or where to stand. <laughs> um, yeah. So I fell in love after doing that. It was a short film and it was really fun. So then I uh, did some more um short and feature films and um, some background work while I was in Houston and finishing graduate school. And I think I did one or two things while I was in medical school. And then in residency, again, everything stopped because there's not enough time to eat or sleep, let alone (laughs) have hobbies or friends or family. And then after I finished uh, residency, I was kind of like, I'm in Los Angeles. Why am I not taking advantage of this? So I started acting again and it's been fun. Uh, COVID slowed down a lot of the, the theatrical work again for a while, but I was able to do some commercial work over the last year. So that was exciting and fun. And, you know, just another thing to keep my career ADD in check. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, I guess. (laughs) What's your favorite part about being an actress? I think the opportunity to tell stories that matter. Um, I really think that storytelling and filmmaking and television, it's an amazing medium to be able to tell stories that matter and tell stories of the future and recognize important people from our past. And so I think that's what I really love about it is just being able to bring attention to um, different stories or emotions or characters that are interesting to me. And I think also it's really fun to just, for somebody like me who really likes to try different things, it's great to be able to sort of immerse myself in a character or a role and not necessarily spend, you know, like 15 years going to grad school and medical school, but yeah 
playing a character in a field that I don't know a lot about and sort of learn about that and try to understand their perspectives and where they're coming from. What are your favorite types of roles to play as an actress? That's a great question. Um, I would have to say, I mean, I haven't played a lot of roles of scientists or doctors, and I would really like to do that. I think that's something that would be really fulfilling for me is, especially I think to recognize some of the historical women in science and medicine who made leaps and bounds forward and um, sort of faced adversity. uh, I think that would be really rewarding for me. In the past, I think I've played a lot of characters who um, are somebody's wife or somebody's girlfriend and I've liked those characters. I mean, you always grow to like your characters no matter who they are, but right. um, I I would really like to play more sort of like strong female uh, scientists and explorers. Is it just a matter of the opportunities for those types of roles have not come up for you or... Yeah, yeah. I, I think for the most part, I do have an audition now I'm excited about to play a physicist, okay. awesome. um, but we'll see how that goes. Awesome. Good for you. You are also the founder and host of the Emergency Docs podcast. How long have you been podcasting and what inspired you to start the podcast? That was something that kind of started at the beginning of COVID, um, where Myself and some of my colleagues noticed there was just this really strong campaign um, of misinformation about the virus and vaccines and science and physicians and what was going on. And I understand a lot of that came from the fact that the messaging was changing so quickly, particularly from like the World Health Organization and the CDC Um, where, you know, one minute they say, don't wear a mask. The next minute they say, do wear a mask. So I think a lot of that was really confusing to a lot of the public. And so we started the podcast as a way to sort of correct um, some of the rumors that had started going around and to just be a source of reliable information from physicians who are in the trenches. Yeah, And um, it's grown into something beyond that at this point you know we've talked to a lot of really interesting people and uh different um patients and um physicians outside of emergency medicine and this season we've actually started talking to physicians about their experiences during covid and kind of what they struggled with and things that they thought were great that happened and um, some of the difficult cases they've had to deal with. And so I think that's been really interesting to hear from colleagues within and outside of emergency medicine as well. So it's definitely morphed and changed over the last um, year and a half, I guess, mm-hmm. at this point. But um, it's it's interesting and it's fun. And um, so hopefully we'll keep doing it for a while. Do you think that the public has become more informed over the course of the past year and is getting the correct information about COVID and and all that goes along with that? Like, I mean, I just think up here in Canada, the government is all over the map with what's going on. And we're, we're currently in Toronto. We just got our, we've been on a stay at home order for the province of Ontario for, three weeks now I think Um, and it was originally six weeks they put us under and we just got extended for another two weeks so we're we're going into the stay-at-home order until June 2nd were cases going back up there yeah oh yeah yeah cases were very high Um, they've started to drop a little bit we were seeing over 4,000 cases a day in Ontario wow yeah so has the information been shared more correctly like where are people where do people go to get the correct information because as you said there was a lot of misinformation a lot of rumors so where do people go to get the correct information and become properly informed yeah i think that is an amazing question and i think for us in the united states the cdc website has a lot of good information but i think it's really tough for people Uh outside of medicine and outside of science because 
I get my information from the primary literature. So right. if I have a question, I go and read the original research study. I judge the methods that they used and kind of figure out, is this something where they did a good job in reaching their conclusions? Are they overreaching? Are they underreaching? And that's not something that's easy for um, most people to do. Right. And so I think that's where the, the real challenge comes in finding reliable sources of information. And I think social media has really made it all the more difficult because there are people that um, people may trust or follow. And when this one very um, popular person has an opinion, then other people kind of take it as fact and yes. it just grows that misinformation. And right. so, you know, I don't, I don't have a perfect answer, Brad. <laughs> I, I do think the, the news tries, the news media tries to do a, a good job of when there are new studies or new findings talking about it and bringing on experts and, um, you know, trying to, trying to get all of that information across as quickly and easily as possible. But, you know, it's, it's always a challenge and different news companies have different perspectives. And a lot of times those opinions affect the message that they're sending to the public. Yeah. It, it just seems like it's been completely chaotic here. I don't know about how things are there now, but it just seems completely chaotic here. In one hand, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. It's, it's absolutely nuts here. And I yeah. heard that we are the only city or the only province in the world right now that we are not allowed to have leisure activities in parks. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So like your lockdown is basically you can't go outside. Um, well, you can go outside for walks and with your dogs and you can go to okay. work if you need to, and you can go to the drugstore and the grocery store, obviously for necessities. But other than that, you're supposed to stay at home, but people aren't listening. They, they busted a party a little while last weekend. I think it was over a hundred people, none of them wearing masks. Um, so people just aren't listening, which yeah. is part of the problem. And I think that's the, the big challenge with this too, is it's been going on for so long and, COVID, SARS-CoV-2, I mean, it's kind of like Russian roulette. You don't yeah. know if you're going to be one of those people who's asymptomatic or has minimal symptoms or if you're going to be one of those people who die. Yeah. And so I think because it's not universally fatal or, you know, um, universally severe, that a lot of people are willing to take chances and risks. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, that just makes it harder to to control everything. Um, I think mask wearing is something that's really easy yeah. um, and it's not painful. And so, you know, I really wish people would stick to that and adhere to that while things are still getting under control in the United States. And especially in places like India, where people live so close to one another. Yes. Um, I think it's, it's just an easy preventive measure um, where, you know. It, yeah. it really can help. And then obviously avoiding huge gatherings with hundreds yes. of people. Um, I think, common sense. Yeah, I think people are just tired of being told what to do. Then that's why they're not adhering to the rules about wearing masks and whatnot. Because they're tired of being told what to do. And it's the government telling them what to do. And yeah. there's all the conspiracy around it mm -hmm. and all that stuff too, right? So yeah. it's just, it's gotten way out of control. And I understand people are tired of it. And it's been a long time. I mean, we're over a year now. So it's, I don't know. I just, yeah. it's a tough thing to deal with. I'm with you. I, I mean, I'm tired of it. And yeah. You know, I've lived it and breathed it over the last yeah. year um, at work and at home. And as a expecting emergency medicine physician, I, it was it's been something that has definitely been at the forefront of almost all of my thoughts. And I'm sure I desperately want it to go away. But <laughs> I think, you know, it's great that we've seen improvement with vaccination. I would really encourage everyone to get vaccinated and just keep wearing a mask, even if you are vaccinated, because you can still potentially transmit virus from person to person, right. um, even if you've been vaccinated. Yeah. 
can you tell us a bit more about the podcast, more of the focus on it, uh, of it? The, is it interview style? Um, is it just you sharing knowledge or is it a mix of both? It's a mix. Um, So most of the time when we're sharing information or knowledge, myself and one of my co-hosts will kind of talk back and forth about a particular topic and the uh, points that we think are really important. Um, Sometimes it'll just be me interviewing um, another physician or a patient or um, a scientist. Um, and so it, it has a pretty variable format and okay. so, and also a, a variable, uh, number of topics where right. sometimes we might discuss ulcerative colitis and like the treatments for ulcerative colitis. And then the next episode, we would have a patient who has had ulcerative colitis for her whole life and kind of how that experience has been for her. And then maybe the next episode, we're talking to an emergency medicine physician who, Uh, worked at the base of Mount Everest and another episode we're talking to a physician who um, started a nonprofit organization for mental health and so the the topics are really variable and I think there's something for everyone but every episode might not be for every person if that makes sense yeah no absolutely a nice little segue there Mount Mount Everest um Speaking of mountain climbing and mountains, and <laughs> you're also a mountain climber and enjoy hiking. Is there yeah. anything that you can't or don't do, Elena? <laughs> um, I am directionally challenged. I cannot find my way from point A to point B to save my life. Um, <laughs> so can you tell us how long you've been a mountain climber and how did you get into mountain climbing? Yeah, Um I climbed my first mountain when I was working at NASA Ames Research Center. So I climbed Mount Lassen. And it had been one of those things as a kid. Again, I saw mountains in the movies and I was like, oh, that'd be cool. Um, and so I'd always thought maybe I'll climb a mountain someday. And Mount Lassen was pretty fun. And then when I was rotating at uh, a UCSF Fresno for medical school rotations. I ended up climbing Half Dome and Alta Peak. And that was kind of when I really was like, oh, mountain climbing is pretty fun. And those are, they're hikes with like some areas where you're, you're using cables to kind of get up steeper rock. Right. And um, so being, I matched to residency in California after that and did a lot more in the area around Los Angeles. So Um, like Mount Wilson and Mount Baldy and San Gorgonio. And I just really got addicted to sort of the (laughs) the fun of being outside and immersed in nature. And again, just sort of tackling that challenge of getting to a summit and getting home and also being safe about what you're doing. You know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong for sure. when you're out in the wilderness. And so I really appreciated the aspects of planning and safety, which I think also kind of goes back to the pilot in me yeah. where it's like, you're always thinking about what could go wrong and how to, how to fix it before it happens. Right. Um, <laughs> and just decided I wanted to do the seven summits. So my husband and I started on uh, that, Early this year, in February of 2020, we climbed Aconcagua, so the tallest mountain in South America. Wow. So is that, would you say, then your most memorable or triumphant climb to date? Yeah, I think so. Um, It's just under 23,000 feet. So um, I think the I was excited about the fact I could still breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Just barely. (laughs) But. Um, it was just kind of a really cool experience to to see how, as a, a physician, how your body sort of changes in those environments. Yeah, for sure. To date, Elena, what would you say is your biggest hire, your greatest win? Oh, gosh, that's that's a really tough question. I think personally, I mean, just like the biggest emotional high was probably right after I delivered my son Mm -hmm. and the doctor put him on my chest. I don't think I've ever had a happier moment. Yeah. I just, even having studied humans and the human body for decades, it just seems like such a miracle to me. It was just so beautiful and so wonderful. Amazing. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become so successful? 
I think honestly, it's just hard work. Like I, I don't think I'm necessarily smart or athletic or, you know, any better at any of those things than anybody else, but I work super, super hard. And once I put my mind to doing something, I just sort of create an action plan and make it happen. There's no um, stopping you. Yeah. It's perseverance and hard work. So speaking of success, how do you define the word success? What does that word mean to you? That's a tough question because I feel like there's so many, um, so many definitions and types of success. I guess strictly, I would say it's just achieving a goal that one sets for oneself. But I also think that you can be successful by not achieving a goal and by learning a lot along the path. And so it's kind of, it's complex. I think success is what you make it. And if you set a goal for yourself and achieve that goal, that's fantastic. But I think you can also be really successful just by learning along the way. Okay. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? What was your life like after learning it? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) Let's see. I guess having had a lot of failures as well as successes, I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying with success, where even if you fail, even if you don't achieve something you set out to do, you can still really learn from those experiences. And rather than view them as failures and beat yourself up and say like, oh, I can't believe I didn't do this it's really important to recognize that life is a process and learning is a process and everything is a journey and to move forward in a positive way, even if you don't necessarily meet your personal expectation. Awesome. What was a turning point in your life and how did that affect you? I feel like there's been so many. Um, I've talked about a few of them, like some of those really pivotal moments. Yeah. Um, I think everyone's life has a lot of those, those different moments. But I think, um, after finishing residency, I really feel like it's kind of the first time in my life that I've been able to pursue different passions and not have to feel guilty about, um, I should be doing this or I should be doing that because everything I'm doing now is sort of furthering a career or, um, a hobby. And so, I think that's been really exciting and really fun. Amazing. What does the word empowerment mean to you? That is an amazing word and I use it often and I am terrible at defining. (laughs) I think being empowered is having the confidence to make your own decisions and do the things that you want to do. It's having the ability to recognize that while I may want to make this choice and other people might not agree with it, it's the choice I'm going to make because I think it's the best choice for me. And again, I think it, it comes down to feeling supported and confident to, to make those decisions. I love that definition. What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? I think when I am hiking or climbing or kind of out in the wilderness, I feel like a sense of freedom that I don't necessarily feel when I'm like in traffic in Los Angeles. (laughs) Yeah, I can Um, only imagine that one. (laughs) I think, yeah, when I'm kind of just out in the middle of nowhere with my husband and um, breathing in the fresh air and having that sort of like strenuous physical movement of climbing or hiking. um, That's when I really, I feel free and I feel inspired. And I feel like I have a lot of thoughts that um, about solving problems. And I think that's where my husband and I have had a lot of our best discussions about technology development for the company we started. So um, yeah, I think I feel very inspired in the outdoors. You started a company. Tell me about that. Well, so 
because of the work that I did in um, the Philippines and Brazil and Kenya, and I'd mentioned not having access to a lot of diagnostic equipment, CT scans, labs, I just found myself in so many of those situations wishing for those types of um, diagnostic tests. And so I started talking to my husband about it, who's an engineer and a physicist, and um, we kind of thought, well, what if we could just build a tricorder, like from Star Trek, where I don't know if you're familiar with Star Trek, but you wave it over a patient's body and it just gives you the answer for like, what's wrong with this patient. Okay. And um, so we were like, well, ultrasound is kind of like that, where you can use an ultrasound on various parts of a patient's body and you can get a lot of diagnostic information from it. And so we started thinking about using ultrasound as a way to improve diagnostics in remote locations. Um, but ultrasound is, it has a pretty steep learning curve. It takes a while to figure out how to use it properly and get good images. And so we're working on using machine learning and ultrasound and um, some molecular technology that we've developed over the years to help improve diagnostics in remote locations and then also in not remote locations in big cities where people might not be able to get to the hospital. So we're, we're working on making um, some, some devices that will help improve diagnostic access for patients. Phenomenal. <laughs> Yet yeah. another thing to add to your resume. <laughs> yeah. It's exciting. I'm um, sure it is. I, I, it's nice in the sense that while I moved on to medicine, I didn't necessarily have to give up science. And I really love the aspect of um, having a question and figuring out the answer through a series of experiments and tests. And so it's been really fun to do that. And then also just as a physician to say, hey, this is a problem in medicine. And I think I can maybe figure out a way to help fix it. And I mean, we have a long way to go with our technology right. development, but um, it's been, it's been really fun so far. But I can only imagine the sense of accomplishment and pride to be able to help solve a problem in medicine like that and, and provide a solution. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that's needed. And I think most people in medicine go into medicine because of wanting to, to help, wanting to help make people feel better and make quality of life better. And so I don't know that, I feel like it's more like a sense of duty than anything else okay. where it's just like, I, I've noticed this is a problem and now I feel obligated to, to help fix it because people need it. And, mm. um, so I think that sort of really drives our whole team in that this is something we feel like is really worth doing and really needed. And so hopefully, Amazing. hopefully we can make it work. I'm sure you will. What would you say is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? Honestly, I go back to that moment in my advisor's office as an undergraduate where I had all of that self-doubt and I was just kind of like, oh, there's no way I could ever work for NASA. And she told me that if you don't try, your chances of success are 0%. Yeah. So I think the best advice I've ever gotten is to just always try. You know, if you don't, if you don't give it a try, then you're definitely not going to be successful. But if you really do work really hard and you try, then, you know, yeah, for sure. There. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I mean, the worst that can happen is that it, it doesn't work out for you. But I believe that we can do anything in life that we set our minds to. Obviously, you're going to have to put in the work to accomplish it. But I truly and wholeheartedly believe that anybody can accomplish anything they want in life. You just have to put in the work and set your mind to it. Mindset is a huge part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We're going to jump in and do a little rapid fire section here. So uh -oh, next okay. grouping of questions, just be one, two, three word answer type things. Okay. Okay. How would you describe yourself in one word? Oh gosh. Um, uh, that's so hard. Um, 
I would say, um, sorry, this isn't very rapid. Um, <laughs> adventure. Adventure. What's the first thing you think when I say the word future? I think about the stars. I think about, I guess, like the Jetsons, um, <laughs> but less cartoony, more real life. <laughs> <laughs> Money or fame? Oh, money. Early bird or night owl? Um, I'm an ER doctor. It's both. Okay. We're always awake. <laughs> <laughs> if you were writing your autobiography, what would the title be? Um, maybe something along the lines of uh, <laughs> having career AD or having career ADD and lessons in perseverance or something like that. I like that. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Elena, if you could teach the world one thing, what would that be? I think kindness over the last year. um, I think I've just, I've really seen a lot of, like we talked about misinformation and hatred and um, not necessarily watching out for our fellow man or woman, And, uh, I think if there's one change that I could make in the world or, you know, one lesson I could teach, it would just be to follow the golden rule, like treat others around you with respect and kindness and, um, empathy. And the more of that we put out into the world, the more we'll be in the world. Yeah. Very true. My favorite way to unwind is? On a daily basis, I would say it's running. I love to run. Yeah. What's one thing you want, but cannot buy with money. Is this an appropriate place to say world peace? No, (laughs) sure. sure. Um, Absolutely. I, I think that it would be genuinely just for people to feel contented and happy. Um, the people around me, my family members, my friends, um, but the entire world, you know, I think, like we talked about before, humans all want to be loved and all want to be appreciated and part of a community and healthy and safe. And so I would I would want those things for everyone. I would love to see a much more contented and happy world. Okay. If you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? Um, I think just, I would want more empathy for everyone. I would want people to consider how their actions affect other people and, um, to just take that into consideration before doing something. You know, if you aren't going to hurt someone by a particular action, then it's probably the the right thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) The last book or podcast I listened to or read was? I am, well, I am just finishing a book in the Charles Lennox series. Um, I read a lot of historical fiction, primarily because my dad reads a lot of historical fiction. And so it's about sort of a detective in the, I think, 17 or 1800s in um, England. Okay. That concludes our rapid fire section. Back to our regularly scheduled program. I am not good at those rapid questions. (laughs) (laughs) Elena, what's the most recent investment you've made in yourself? Uh, I think time, giving myself the time to do things that are interesting and that I'm passionate about. I think being a wife, being a mom, there's always this sort of sense of um, obligation to family and always wanting to put that first. And I think what I really learned is that I need to also invest some time in myself and have some time to take a run or um, go and explore something new and interesting. And so I think that's probably the main thing is just giving myself a little bit of time every day. For sure. Self-care is key. Yeah, definitely. What's your personal motto? Um, I think ad astra per aspera. Um, so to the stars through difficulties. Um, and it's been something that I've, I mean, obviously with my interest in space flight have been interested in that aspect of it, but, um, really 
just the the sentiment to persevere even through difficulty has really kind of stayed with me. I love it. If you could set up a billboard anywhere, where would you put it and what would it say? Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'd maybe put up a, a billboard for um, the Emergency Docs podcast um, and just have it, you know, point out that the podcast is a, a reliable source of medical information or kind of interesting medical questions you might have. And I'd put it probably on the side of maybe like the five okay like good la freeways seven lane highways (laughs) (laughs) what is one of your biggest failures or teachable moments and what did you learn from it i mean i think i've had a lot of failures and a lot of times that i've struggled or just kind of had a hard time and I remember one time in graduate school, I had just done my first round of experiments and I really thought my cells were going to die after exposure to radiation and microgravity, but my virus infected cells ended up living. And that was a huge surprise to me. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I messed this experiment up. Like, what did I do and what's wrong? And sitting in my advisor's office and just being like, I, you know, I, I just... I don't know what happened, but this isn't what we thought was going to happen. And learning from that moment that while it may not be what I expected, it ended up making my research and my work so much more interesting because now I had this like problem to figure out. It wasn't what I expected, but um, it actually made it so cool and ended up changing all of the experiments that I'd planned and kind of going in a different direction. So while it may look like a failure in that first moment, it might actually just be a little detour. Interesting. Amazing. Everything happens for a reason. Elena, if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask you? I feel like we've covered so much. Um, (laughs) I don't know that I I have any other uh, questions. Yeah, I don't don't have anything that comes to mind. All right. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? I think to just stick with it. Like, don't give in to any of that self-doubt and to try. And I think I've I've learned from that and moved forward from there. But there were definitely moments where I wasn't sure if I should keep going or not. That's that's a big one. Self-doubt is huge. I mean dealing with the external noise of other people and sources is bad enough, but I think self-doubt is the absolute worst demon we have to deal with. And it's hard to overcome. Again, that goes back to mindset shift and dealing with all of that and figuring out how to deal with that and trust in yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lastly, Elena, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? Ooh, this is, I guess, is it just like before? No, just, just wisdom you want to impart onto the world. Uh, I think we've talked about a lot of the, the topics already, but I think the thing that I could offer everyone is to just persevere, to not give in to the self-doubt and to figure out what your passions are, because if you're truly passionate about something, then it doesn't feel like work and you don't mind the long hours. And so particularly for women, we give so much of ourselves to those around us and to the world around us. So I would just encourage you to find your passions and persevere through the difficulties, because if it makes you happy, it'll absolutely be worth it in the end. Amazing. I love it. Elena, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. You are one of the most inspirational people I've ever, ever spoken with. With all that you do and all that you've accomplished and all that you're working on, and you are just beyond measure. It's unbelievable. I'm in complete awe of everything you do. It's amazing. You are such an inspiration. I just want you to know that I appreciate you and I really truly appreciate you taking the time to be here and share your story today and for being part, you are now part of the empowerography community and it's an honor and a pleasure to have you as part of the community. Thank you. And thank you 
so much for what you're doing for women. Um, you know, when I spoke with you initially, I just, I can't get over how, uh, how incredible it is to have you supporting women's voices and really working to empower. And I'm so appreciative of that. So thank you. My pleasure. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Elena Ranjagopal. She is a physician, scientist, and serial entrepreneur based in LA. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here again today, Elena. I appreciate you. Have an amazing rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca and follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.